Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter four, continuing our study in Matthew's gospel. Pay close attention, this is God's holy word. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two older brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and we're thankful for this gospel that tells us about the life and the work of our savior, Jesus. Please, by your spirit, draw us into this text that we might hear and see and know what your son was doing and how he pleased you so that we may follow him and we may likewise be pleasing to you in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. There are certain hobbies and sports which I believe were invented simply to humble us, simply maybe even to humiliate us, certain things. Take golf, for example. It's an incredibly difficult game. It's unbelievably difficult. It, all, it looks real fun. I mean, it looks really a lot of fun to be out with your buddies in a nice environment, uh, outdoors. You, you know, you see a goose, you see a duck. I've seen deer out on the golf course, but along about the fourth or fifth hole, I'm wondering, why am I doing this to myself? Uh, what, 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 I don't deserve this. I, I, what am I doing? Why am I putting myself through this? But it's good. Humiliation is good for your soul. Right next to the self, uh, right next to golf on the self-humiliation scale is fishing. Hey, would you like a hobby where you put yourself in a position to be outwitted by a creature with the brain the size of a cashew? Would you like that? Hey, have I got the sport for you. Uh, fishing. Catching fish requires a great deal of patience. You can't get in a hurry. It requires perseverance. Don't ever get discouraged. Keep trying, keep trying different things. It requires a kind of intuition, knowing where to cast, knowing which lure to use, how to make the lure glide through the water just right, when to set the hook, when to crank the reel, when not to, and that's just casual fishing. 
commercial fishing, fishing as a business, fishing to feed your family, fishing to feed a community, requires a much higher level of expertise. In addition to the patience and the perseverance and the intuition, you have to have courage to go way out from shore, to go where the fish are, knowledge and experience to know where the fish are and to know how to get them in to the boat not just one at a time, not just one fish at a time, not using a rod and a reel, but using these great nets to catch many at a time. And to, for a living, to be dependent upon all kinds of factors that will make your catches small or great. Uh, it takes a, a special kind of person, a special breed, to be able to do all of that. And so it's notable that the first man whom Jesus called to be Part of his mission, the first men he called were professional fishermen, skilled blue-collar workers, risk-takers, hard men, not soft men. He doesn't go first to the social elites, to the academics and the scholars. He doesn't go to the respectable, affluent upper crust. Jesus goes first to the common man, to the working man, and specifically goes to men whose livelihoods are dependent upon a host of factors outside of their control. Men who must possess, uh, possess patience and perseverance and courage. This all set them up well for a life of following Jesus. And then like everything Jesus does, including calling these fishermen, it's both a fulfillment of prophecy where he does this, and it's a prophetic action in and of itself. We'll uh, watch this unfold as we walk through this text together. Let's catch up to where we are, where we left off last week. Jesus has been baptized by John at the Jordan River. He's been led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to fast for 40 days. He's been tempted by Satan. He resists all of Satan's lies. Satan flees from him, and the angels come and minister to Jesus. Immediately after this, as this text opens, we read that John the Baptist has been put into prison. We're going to read later. Later on in Matthew's gospel, we'll get more information about this, how John the Baptist publicly denounced Herod for taking his brother's wife. Herod took his brother's wife. He put away his own wife. This Herod, reigning presently, was Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. We read about Herod the Great several weeks ago, who was king when Jesus was born. Herod the Great is the uh, paranoid tyrant who put the baby boys in Bethlehem to death. This is his son, Antipas, and the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. Antipas is a tyrant, he's paranoid, and he's thin-skinned. So John's courageous prophetic admonishment of Herod is met with, it's answered by first imprisonment. John is thrown into prison, and eventually, John is going to be put to death. Again, Matthew will fill us in all, on, on all those details at a later chapter. But for now, what he says is, here is the end of John's public ministry, and this marks the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Jesus and John the Baptist are, are tied together in such a way that John's ministry foreshadows the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus's work picks up on John's work and follows John's. These two cousins, remember John and Jesus were cousins. Uh, we find that out in Luke's gospel. 
They both, John and Jesus, have the same core message, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They both preach that message. Both of them are in conflict with the religious leadership of Jerusalem. Both of them fall into Herod's hands at different times. Both of them, both John and Jesus, are put to death for their work. So there are many similarities. Their work is tied together. But Jesus isn't simply a repeat of John. He's not simply a replacement of John. Jesus's work intensifies and elevates the work that John has has done. Uh, John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John points to Jesus. John gets us ready for Jesus. John calls faithful disciples out of Israel, pulls them all together, and then sends them Jesus's way. Uh, John paves the way, but Jesus is far greater in every respect. And, And John admits that. John says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. In our study so far, we've seen several parallels in John's work and Jesus's work to Elijah and Elisha. And I'm thankful that last fall and winter, we spent a lot of time studying Elijah. That sets us up well for this. I wish we had more time to study Elisha back then because there are so many uh, things that would be helpful to, uh, to recall here. But there are parallels between Elijah and Elisha and John the Baptist and, and Jesus. Elisha expands on and glorifies Elijah's ministry the way that Jesus expands on and glorifies John's. Uh, Think of Elijah and John together for just a a moment. Elijah and John are both the lone prophet out there in the wilderness. Both of them, both Elijah and John, are these wild, hairy men surviving off the land, publicly confronting false prophets, publicly calling out tyrant kings. Elijah went toe-to-toe with Ahab. John calls out Herod. Both of them, their lives are threatened by these tyrant kings. Elijah and John are first on the scene to blaze the trail. Then come Elisha, then comes Jesus by contrast to Elijah and John the Baptist, Elisha and Jesus are not alone. They don't work out in the wilderness. Elisha and Jesus have disciples. They go from town to town. They do their work in communities and they work many miracles of mercy. There are eight miracles of Elijah listed in 1 Kings. And most of those miracles of Elijah have to do with judgment. He prays that the rain would stop. He calls down fire on Ahab's um, armies that are coming to, to get him, to come to look for him. Elijah's miracles have to do with judgment, and there are eight of them. Elisha's miracles, which are listed, are 16 in number in 2 Kings, and most of those, the majority of those, are acts of mercy. Elisha does these miracles of healing, of resurrection, of feeding. So the ministry, in so many ways, the ministry of Jesus is like the ministry of Elisha, which was a merciful ministry and an expansion of the forerunner. Now, why is this important? It's because the prophets told Israel to look for Elijah. One like Elijah is coming. Well, if you're looking for Elijah, 
You need to look for Elisha to follow him. They were set up for this, and, they, and the prophecy unfolds beautifully with Elijah stepping aside and Elisha coming to the forefront, just as John steps aside, and now Jesus comes to center stage. So we read that after John is put into prison, Jesus leaves Nazareth, the town where he grew up, and Jesus moves out into the region of Galilee. There are place names in the Bible that we just say. We just say names like, you know, Judea, Palestine, Galilee, Nazareth, without really having a sense of what any of these mean or what the places were like. Why does Jesus go to Galilee? What is Galilee? And how is it different from Nazareth where he grew up? Remember, first of all, why Joseph and Mary and Jesus moved to Nazareth after they come out of Egypt, Herod the Great is dead, they come back and they avoid Jerusalem and Judea because Herod's son is now ruling there. And they wanna avoid the Herods as much as possible. Herod may still be looking for him. A Herod may still be looking for Jesus. So they go all the way outside of the jurisdiction of the Herods, they go all the way to Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grows up. But now, after John is imprisoned, now Jesus is deliberately moving back into the territory ruled by the Herods. Herald and, I say Herald, why did I say that? Herod, uh, Herod, forgive me, uh, Herod Antipas, his first title when he came to power, his first, his, his first title was Tetrarch of Galilee. He was the ruler of Galilee before he was elevated uh, beyond that. So, so, so watch what's happening. Jesus responds to the imprisonment of John the Baptist by moving into the territory of the Herods, not by retreating, but by advancing. You might expect Jesus to move further away. Oh, wow, they're imprisoning, they're imprisoning God's prophets. Maybe I should get out from under him. No, Jesus says, I'm going on offense. I'm going to move into Herod's backyard, essentially. And that's where Jesus, Jesus goes. Galilee was the most northerly district of Palestine, up around the Sea of Galilee. And if you can picture, if you have one of those maps in the back of your Bible, it's that, that northern territory. Back in the days of Joshua, this was the territory that was given to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. It was geographically small. It was about 50 miles east to west. It was about 25 miles north to south. But it was densely populated. The Jewish historian Josephus says that by the first century, there were like 204 cities and villages and towns scattered throughout this very small region. Some of those towns had, and, and cities had more than 15,000 people, which was a big, uh, a big city for uh, that region and for that time. This was a place, Galilee was a place where you could make a living. It featured fertile farmland, a flourishing fishing industry around the Sea of Galilee. The town that Jesus goes to, Capernaum, is a fishing village on the, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. It, it also, Galilee was this region that sat right at the crossroads of the east to west, north to south highways through this part of the world. It sat right at the crossroads of the ancient world through this region. Um, so Galilee had a solid working class economy in the first century 
It was also surrounded by Gentile uh, territories on three sides. So Galilee had mostly a Jewish population, but had a great deal of interaction with the other nations and peoples of the ancient world. If you grew up in Galilee, you would have had much more exposure to the other nations than you would have if you grew up in Jerusalem. A common saying was, Galilee is on the road to everywhere, Jerusalem is on the road to nowhere. And it was on the road to nowhere in more ways than one in the first century. Jerusalem was tucked away in, in the south, in Judea, and it was walled off in more than one way. Uh, it, it was uh, essentially racially and religiously and culturally insulated. And people in Jerusalem had a long-held mistrust and a suspicion of anybody or anything who came from Galilee. The Galileans' proximity to, to all of these Gentiles and these nations made them seem unclean to uh, Orthodox, pure Jews. The Galileans were of questionable moral fiber because you must, have be, you must be eating and interacting with all these Gentiles all the time, and you're, you're unclean. This low evaluation of the Galilean territory had historical precedent going all the way back to the time of King Solomon. You remember that uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, contributed a lot of resources and riches and manpower to the building of the temple in Jerusalem and in uh, Solomon's palace. This fellow king, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent all of, this, all of these riches and resources to help Solomon. 20 years later, after it's all built, Solomon says, ah, oh, Hiram did all this good for me, and I, I need to repay him. So Solomon deeds over to Hiram. He gives him 20 cities of Galilee, which why Solomon would do this, why he thinks he has the right to give uh, the Lord's heritage, the inheritance of the people of Israel over to a foreign king, that's confusing to begin with. He, I don't think he has that right, but he does. He gives Hiram those 20 cities and Hiram thinks, hey, what a gift, wow, this is incredible. And then Hiram rides out to go look at these cities and he's not impressed at all. He finds hovels and slums. Uh, Hiram says, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, which means worthless or good for nothing. See, after everything that Hiram had done for Solomon, uh, he, was, he was put off that Solomon would repay his generosity with these little ugly towns. And Hiram's appraisal stuck. This, this land, this territory of Galilee became known as Kabul throughout history, worthless, uh, good for nothing. Because this region was on the extreme northern border, because, because it was on the outer limits of the land of promise, it had a tough history. It was always the first territory to be invaded by uh, outsiders. It was the first territory to be taken by Assyria when they conquered Israel. It, their people were the first ones to go in exile. It was the first region to be repopulated by Assyria. And as far as Jerusalem was concerned, Galilee was not a desirable place at all. Galilee was a dark, uh, a dark, unwelcoming place. This is not a place you want to go. Kind of like Chapel Hill. I mean, you, don't, you just don't want to go there. It's just, you know, why? Why do you want to go there? 
I'm joking. Uh, somebody's here from Chapel Hill, I'm sure, and you'll give me a hard time. And I deserve it if you give me a hard time. But it was undesirable. They didn't want to. They didn't want to go there at all. It was a dark place, and yet it's on this place that Jesus advances at the beginning of, beginning of his ministry. Jesus comes to Galilee, to this dark place, this foreboding place, fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew quotes Isaiah for us. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Light doesn't come first to Judah. It doesn't come first to Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't go first to the purebred Jewish population. He doesn't go first to the ruling class or to the elite. Where does he go? He goes to the merchants. He goes to the fishing villages. He goes to the farming communities. He goes to the people with rough hands and tanned forearms and necks that are red. He starts in a place with many Gentiles, which is where his kingdom project is headed anyway. He's headed to the Gentiles eventually, and this is where he starts. Another reason that he starts here, not only is this uh, uh, just a taste of what's to come by going to the Gentiles, but he's also provoking what's left of faithful Israel, provoking them to jealousy, for them to want to be part of Messiah's kingdom, for them to want to be part of what he's doing. We've, we've studied so many times and we studied Jesus's genealogy. There are all these people throughout history who are clawing and fighting their way into the covenant, like Tamar, like Ruth, like Rahab, who just want to be a part of the covenant people. And, and this is what Jesus is provoking Jerusalem to, to let them see that they're being left out and that what he has and what he's doing is desirable, provoking them to desire it as well. Back in Deuteronomy 32, Moses warns Israel, Moses, Moses warns Israel that if you provoke Yahweh to jealousy by going after other gods, Yahweh is gonna provoke you to jealousy by going after other nations. Jesus turns his attention to Galilee of the Gentiles in order to provoke Jerusalem to jealousy uh, for what he's doing and his kingdom. He's turning toward another people. And of course, um, after you know, uh, the day of Pentecost, that's where, that's where the mission is going. It's there in Galilee that Jesus announces his central purpose and message. It's here that Jesus unfurls his, his sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You recall that this was John the Baptist's message as well. And remember, John didn't say, and Jesus is not saying, especially John, John doesn't say, if you get your hearts right, and if you have a revival, if you somehow stir up a revival, and if you get your government sorted out, you get all this stuff worked out, then you will bring in the kingdom of heaven. If, if you do right things, if, if you behave correctly, your work is going to bring in the kingdom of heaven. That's not what John says, and that's not what Jesus says. No, they say, the kingdom of heaven is coming. You must turn from your sins in order to be part of it. You must leave your idols and join this project, or else you are going to be crushed by it. Jesus comes declaring that God's kingdom, the sovereign and eternal rule of heaven over earth, it is imminent. It is at the doorstep. 
it is coming. And this is a very hopeful thing. This is good news to those who are longing for it. For those who want things to run on earth the way that they run in heaven, those who want earth's priorities to be heaven's priorities, those who want what God loves to be, to be, to be loved on earth, those who want to hate what God hates because it kills us and destroys us and tears us apart, those who want to share heaven's priorities are thrilled at this message that the kingdom of heaven is coming. But this coming kingdom is a dreadful thing to those who are happy with how things are going. If you're happy with how things are running on earth, uh, then, then you're in big trouble. And you're not gonna think that this is a good thing. If heaven's perfect justice is coming, then those who make a living by twisting justice are going to get plowed under. If heaven's order is coming, then those who love disorder and those who love rebellion are going to get clobbered. So Jesus says, now is the time to get your act together while there's still time. Not because you're getting your act together is going to bring in the kingdom. The kingdom is coming, but if you want to be on the kingdom's agenda, you still have time to put away your sin, turn from your idols. The day of the Lord is here. Repent, stop doing what you're doing, turn from sin, and join this kingdom project. Now, not only does Jesus unleash his root message here in Galilee, but it's also here that he calls the core group of his team of helpers. It's here that he he calls his closest disciples here in Galilee. I want to pick up this again from verse 18 and read it and listen to the immediacy. Listen to what these men are doing when he calls them. I'm going to read it again. Verse 18. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two older brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. What kind of man was Jesus that he could issue this call to hardworking fishermen, tough men, in the middle of their workday? They are mending their nets, they are casting their nets, they're in the boat when Jesus walks up and speaks to them. What kind of man was he that they drop what they're doing and they follow him. What kind of man was this Jesus? We read in many places in the Gospels that he was not like the scribes, but he spoke with authority. Jesus didn't come across as this soft, timid academic. Jesus had this real presence, a gravity. He had a dignity that was uncommon and striking, but he also must have had this measure of grit to be able to get their confidence, to get their attention. I have a hard time believing that they would have dropped their nets to follow the guy in the uh, Sunday school painting or the, uh, you know, the, the painting your grandma had on her wall. You know that guy? You know what I'm talking about? He's got um, you know, a fair white complexion and blue eyes and great hair. You know, that, that guy is really, really good, really good hair. You got to give him that. But that's not Jesus. They wouldn't have followed that guy, whoever he is. Uh, That guy might have been able to pick up some followers down at the hair salon, but the real Jesus, 
had to have commanded their respect and earned their trust and have been the kind of man that Peter and Andrew and James and John would follow. Now, it's likely that this is not the first time that they've all met Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And then when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist tells Andrew, behold the Lamb of God, and he tells Andrew to go follow Jesus. And then Andrew spends all day with Jesus. Andrew goes home and he tells his brother, Peter, who he's just met, and he says, we, I've, I've met the Messiah. He's here. And they uh, spend time talking about Jesus. Jesus has spent many Sabbaths ministering in and around the synagogues in Galilee. He knows Andrew at least personally by this point. He has been heard. He knows them. He's been seen by them. They've looked at his work. They may have listened to him teach in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. It's this man now who comes to them, looks them in the eye and says, follow me. And then they drop their nets and follow them, even though it's in the middle of their workday. Jesus interrupts their work to give them better work, to give them greater work. The way that Elijah interrupts Elisha's workday. Do you remember that? Elisha was plowing and Elijah just shows up and interrupts his work and Elisha follows him. It's notable that God calls men to extraordinary service who are already doing something. Jesus doesn't go around looking for guys who have nothing else better to do. When, when Jesus calls someone, they're already working. He doesn't call those who are laying around with no direction or purpose in their life but he does call guys who are listening and working, who are hearing and obeying. How many times have we called church officers? How many times have we ordained men who are already doing the work of the office? <laughs> that guy needs to be a deacon. Why do you say that? Well, because he's doing all the work of a deacon already. We might as well just acknowledge what God is doing with him and doing him. He's doing the work of a deacon, so he needs to be, he needs to be a deacon. He needs to be an elder. He needs to be in this office. Doing hard jobs prepares you for harder jobs. Taking responsibility prepares you to take more responsibility. Doing nothing prepares you for nothing. That's what nothing prepares you for. Nothing prepares you for nothing, which is why it's more important, especially for young men. I, I realize that um, you know, we, we have differences of callings and we have differences, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on young men especially it's, it's important for young men starting out to work any job, any job you can get. It's more important to do any job than it is to do nothing. I think we're always bewildered by the pride that says, I can't find a job. And you say, what do you mean you can't find a job? There's help wanted signs all over the place. What do you mean you can't find a job? Well, I mean, I don't want to work fast food, and I don't want to work retail, and I don't want to do anything that makes you sweat. I don't want to do any manual labor, so I can't find a job. And then you say to that young man, well, you need to go uh, get a job putting chicken in a bucket or, or flipping tacos or doing something that makes you sweat. Prove yourself there. Demonstrate that you can show up on time. Demonstrate that you can take orders, that you can do what you're told and do it well. And don't think you're too good to do anything. Do that. And you will improve and get more responsibility from there. Glory and honor and responsibility and opportunity flow to the worker. The one who works has glory and honor and responsibility and opportunity. Poverty rushes to the sluggard. And Jesus calls these men who are already 
working. As I said at the beginning, these fishermen would have had specific qualities that were attractive to Jesus. They had to be patient, they had to have perseverance, they had to have courage, a lot of flexibility, they were able to weather difficult circumstances, they trusted God for their provision. All of these things were baked into their lifestyle as fishermen and made them suitable apprentices to Jesus. And not only that, but these are the men who are gonna have to lead the church They're the fathers of the church after Jesus ascends to the Father in heaven. These qualities make them great leaders, but there's also a prophetic dimension to the call of these fishermen. When Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, this isn't the first time in the Bible that we read about fishing for men. Uh, Jesus doesn't just come up with that and we think, oh, that's a weird phrase. That's a weird statement. No, it comes up in the prophets. Listen to how Jeremiah talks about the coming Babylonian invasion. Uh, Jeremiah says, behold, I will send for many fishermen, says Yahweh, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. Jeremiah, quoting Yahweh, says, when Babylon comes, no one is escaping. They will find you in the hiding places. They will lure you. They will fish you out. They will hook you and they will drag you out and they will take you from your kingdom to their kingdom. That's what Babylon is doing. Babylon are fishers of men. They're coming to take you out. And then in Amos 4.2, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the day shall come when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Ezekiel in 38.4 talks about drawing an enemy army to battle using the same language. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out. So as far as the Old Testament prophets are concerned, fishing for men is an action of invasion. It's a capture. It's it's drawing a people into exile. And the Lord warns his people in the prophets. He warns them, fishermen are coming and they're gonna pull you out and they're gonna take you into exile. They're gonna take you from your environment and put you out among the Gentiles. They're gonna put you in their boat to go live in their kingdom and to learn their ways. Now this message that Jesus uses is not too far from that. He's calling his disciples now to be the fishermen, to be the aggressors, to go capture people from the nations, to drag them out of the sea of the Gentiles, to land them in the ark, to land them in the boat and make them part of his kingdom to learn his ways. This is invasion language that Jesus uses when he says, I wanna make you fishers of men. The disciples of Jesus are gonna go throughout the land and go throughout the world casting the net, dragging people into the kingdom, except instead of taking them into exile, they're gonna rescue them from exile. The people of the world and the nations are already in exile. They're already exiled from God's presence. They're exiled from his word. They're exiled from his blessing, his fellowship, his favor. And so what he's calling his disciples to do is to go fish them out of the chaotic sea and bring them into the good land of the kingdom. That's a totally different perspective on on our mission as a church, especially when we are used to thinking that we're playing defense all the time. Evangelicals especially, we think that our job is to just huddle and cover up what little uh, truth 
or presence or, or gift of the Holy Spirit we have and defend it constantly from all of this outward attack and this, this outward assault on our faith. Yes, you must defend holy and precious things. But God also puts us on offense. When he tells them to go be fishers of men, he puts them on offense. I'm not gonna say this because there's a, uh, some kind of a sporting event today, but imagine a football team getting the football and punting it on first down. That's pretty much what the church does when we get the football. When we go on offense, we just say, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to go on offense. I don't know how to take the initiative. I don't know how to make a play. So we punt on first down because we think we know how to play defense. We defend, we can huddle, we can group up, we can protect and, uh, and we can defend but we don't know how to make a play. And then we, you know, as post-millennialists, we get the football and we say, hey guys, this may sound kind of crazy. What if we try to run the ball? What if we try to throw the ball? What if we try to do something with it? Uh, it's a different perspective, but it means this being fishers of men means that we are on offense. We are the invaders. We, and which is why we get so much resistance, which is why uh, they, they, they fight the hook, which is why they fight uh, fight their way into the boat. But we are plucking people out of one kingdom and taking them into a new kingdom. We are the aggressors. We are the invaders. And that's the job that Jesus calls his disciples to. That's what makes them drop their nets and follow him to go do this. But when you go casting your net into the world, when you throw it out there and you drag it in, you're gonna drag in all kinds of stuff. You're gonna drag in good fish and an old boot, and a tin can, and a tire. You're gonna get a whole lot of stuff when you do this. Jesus told a parable, a parable about this, didn't he? Back in um, Matthew 13, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. When you throw that net out, there's no telling what you're going to dredge up and drag in. And that's exactly what we see in the next several verses, uh, picking up in uh, verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Um, he, he goes to the synagogues, which were the local centers of worship and learning. He goes there to these places to reveal himself as the Messiah, to announce the arrival of the kingdom. And then between Sabbaths, he heals all kinds of sickness and disease. He makes direct contact with those who are suffering from various illnesses, who are tormented in pain and agony and distress. Many who have biological illnesses like epilepsy and paralysis, but many also who are demon-possessed. And he has the solution and the answer and the healing for all of their woes and all of their hurts. If you can imagine living in a world before modern medicine, a world before Tylenol, things we take for granted, um, someone who can heal you, someone who can bring you relief, someone who can make your physical suffering and pain to go away, it's gonna draw quite a crowd. And Jesus wades into that, happily, joyfully wades into that because of this healing that he brings is just a foretaste of the greater healing and salvation he's bringing 
the world. It's life-changing and significant, surely, for those who are suffering, but it's just a taste, just a sign of the healing he's bringing to the whole earth. He comes to release the world from its bondage to demons. And here he goes to work, right into the thick of it. Since last week, I've been thinking more about that um, second temptation. Remember, I thought, uh, I'm not quite sure what Satan was up to in leading Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and inviting him to throw himself off. I've never been quite sure what Satan was up to there. And we talked last week, I thought, well, he's going to see if Maybe the angels would bear him up or the father would accept that kind of sacrifice. Now, as we read this section, we see how different this reality is from that thing that Satan proposed to Jesus. Had Jesus announced his arrival in Jerusalem at the temple by throwing himself off of a parapet and then perhaps, if God permitted, perhaps to gently descend to earth on a cushion of angels, that might have been quite a spectacle. That, that might have been, you know, talk about amazing optics. That would have been incredible to announce your coming that way. That would have really gotten them talking. It may have been even the kind of thing that certain people were looking for from Messiah. But instead, that's not what Jesus does at all. Instead, we have this. This is how he comes. This is how he reveals himself. Jesus going to working class towns among blue collar people, teaching from synagogue to synagogue, from Sabbath to Sabbath, living with and tending to and ministering to the diseased and the suffering and the demon possessed and meeting each one of their needs. This, Jesus shows us, this is how the kingdom comes. This is where the kingdom starts. This is how it is first seen, not by keeping a safe distance from the muck and the trouble and the aches and the agony, but through the man Jesus who enters into human suffering, hunger, deprivation, exhaustion, human weakness. This is why the kingdom has come to provide relief And Sabbath, this is why the church exists. We're casting out the net and we're dragging in all kinds of fish, all kinds of refugees, all kinds of people who have been abused and neglected by the world, who have had their heads beaten in by the demons. And we pull them in, not so that we can show them how we are pristine and perfect and without sin, or worse yet, to show them how to pretend to be perfect. Hi, welcome to the church. This is where we pretend to be perfect. And here's how you too can pretend to be perfect. Pretend that we're all floating on clouds of angels. God forbid, that's not what we're here to do. But to face, like Jesus did, face the reality of human suffering and to meet that suffering and despair and hurt with Jesus and in Jesus and with the gospel. Why do we have problems and disagreements and conflicts among Christians in churches? Why does conflict kind of gravitate toward Christian people? Why is nothing ever perfect? Why is nothing ever 100% peaceful? You know why? It's because all of us are sick and afflicted with various diseases and torments. None of us know how to act. We don't, we don't know how to behave. We, we don't know how to treat other people. And we all have to come gather together around the one who can heal all of us. We're in the right place to deal with these kinds of things. In fact, we are in the only place that knows how to deal with these kinds of things. Only the church 
has the gospel and the law of God. And having these difficult things to work out together, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That's why we're here. That's why we're together. That's why we came to Jesus to have all this sorted out. He enters into it with us and that's why he came. So he calls his church, he calls his bride to keep casting out the net, to keep dragging them in so that we can get, you know, the sweet fish and the beautiful fish and the colorful fish and the ugly fish and the ones with the underbite with the thing on their head and the, the, all the weird fish and all the creepy fish. And we get them all in there and we learn how to live. We learn how to live together while Jesus sorts us out and teaches us how to live and heals our diseases and strengthens us and puts our feet on dry land. This is how he builds the kingdom. Let's give thanks and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for his call to all of us to be fishers of men. We pray that you would give us the perseverance and the patience, the sense of duty, and the courage to do just that, just as you called these men. So continue this work with us in our generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.